Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Uh, we've got a great guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. You're going to be want to be here for Brett Giroir. He is the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is an admiral. He is a doctor. He is the guy in charge of, of coordinating the COVID-19 testing throughout the nation. He is going to be with me. The White House reached out late yesterday to see if they could get him on with me. He will be here at 930. You're not going to want to miss that. The White House and the Senate have reached a $2 trillion stimulus deal package. Uh, the question is, how does it get through the House of Representatives today? I will explain. But first, let me do the daily audit of what is going on around the state right now, the state of Georgia. We've got uh, 1,097 cases now. 361 people are hospitalized, and 38 of those people have died. That is a 3.8 per 3.4% mortality rate in Georgia right now. Uh, but again, the number is so low of the number of people that we know for sure are infected. The testing continues to go up. 56% of those, uh, 57% of those are under the age of 60, 35% over the age of 60. It's a pretty even male-female split. Let me give you the the county-by-county county numbers here. Now, the list continues to grow. I realize we've got a lot of counties, but everybody's interested in what their county is, so listen for the name of your county. 100, 191 in Fulton, 107 DeKalb, 101 Darty. 90 in Cobb, 76 in Bartow, 46 in Gwinnett, 30 in Cherokee, 26 in Carroll, 24 in Lee, 21 in Clayton, 17 in Clark, 16 in Hall, 13 in Henry, 12 in Douglas, 12 in Fayette, 12 in Floyd, 11 in Lowndes, 10 in Coweta, 10 in Richmond, 8 in Forsyth, 8 in Gordon, 8 in Polk, 8 in Rockdale, 7 in Chatham, 6 in Columbia, 6 in Lawrence, 6 in Newton, 6 in Paulding, 6 in Troop, 5 in Early, 5 in Glen, 5 in Hall, 5 in Oconee, 5 in Spalding, 4 in each of these, Bibb, Mitchell, Muskogee, Pickens, Sumter, Tift, and Worth counties. Three in each of these counties, Baker, Crisp, Effingham, Lamar, Lumpkin, Monroe, Peach, and Terrell. Two in each of these counties, Baldwin, Barrow, Bryan, Butts, Coffee, Seminole, Stevens, Whitfield, and one in each of these counties, Ben Hill, Burke, Camden, Catoosa, Charlton, Chattooga, Clinch, Colquitt, Dawson, Fanning, Green, Harris, Hurd, Irwin, Jasper, Liberty, Lincoln, Macon, Madison, Merriweather, Miller, Morgan, Pierce, Pulaski, Randolph, Tattnall, Telfair, Turner, Twiggs, Walton, and Washington counties. We have 79 cases. We don't know where the people are from. Uh, one of the interesting ones uh, to in my mind is Charlton County. That is uh, south of Waycross. It's there at uh, the Okefenokee swamp area uh, and it is they're holding steady with just one case there it has been one case there for two weeks now they have not expanded which is actually a, a good sign down there that they only have one person. Now, you should know for perspective here, uh, in India right now, they have shut the entire country down. The entire country, 1.3 billion people are now on a lockdown in India. Uh, that's never happened before in uh, human history that one nation has locked down in people's homes that many people they hardly have any cases in india the problem is they're afraid if it gets into the wild in india they've got 562 cases right now and 10 deaths and they're afraid if it gets into the wild in india given the close quarters there and the lack of uh hygiene in, in parts of india or lack of, of good sanitation that it's going to go crazy nationally we've got right now uh 9 10 a.m 55 5,238 cases in the United States, 
802 people have died. The official recovery number is 354, but obviously more have actually recovered than that. Uh, we've got growing numbers in Florida and Louisiana, uh, and of course the New York situation is pretty terrible what's going on in new york city right now uh that city is just not doing well and and i want to get into some of the data there but first i want to bring you up to speed on what the stimulus package has done the democrats were forced to abandon many of their preferred pieces of of policy and proposals because they didn't actually relate to what was going on. It was somewhat striking to me to see even members of the media turn on nancy pelosi now initially the media decided that it really wasn't Nancy Pelosi's fault. The media initially decided that Nancy Pelosi was in the right, and you started seeing from Politico and the New York Times and elsewhere that, oh, the Republicans are just reverting back to the blame Nancy Pelosi thing, and it's not really her fault. It's Mitch McConnell's fault. It's the Republicans' fault. The Republicans aren't being reasonable. And then the data started leaking out from Republicans on what exactly it was that people were funding in the plan and suddenly there was the great meltdown of the media that you can't do this you, you can't do this and it you know even you had people like uh sunny huston at the view uh, which i can't believe they're still running that show but they are and she lost her mind over the president potentially benefiting and in fact uh it was one of the first people out of the gate suggesting this conspiracy theory that the reason the president wants to jumpstart the economy is because it's hurting him let's listen to this this is what you call trump derangement syndrome if you want to know what i thought what i say is trump derangement syndrome it's stuff like this that you view everything through the lens of donald trump as opposed to the lens of reasonable people in the country we can save our grandparents uh, if we just stay at home that is not too much to ask for and every single health expert is advising this president to continue to tell people to stay at home for him to just sort of you know flout that in that advice tells me that there is something in it for him and it tells me that there's something economic in it for him. When you look at Trump's personal businesses, you know that he is losing almost $500,000 a day because six out of his seven hotels are losing money. They are shuttered every day. And that is why our founding fathers put the emoluments clause into the Constitution because our president should be more concerned about the lives of Americans rather than lining his own pocket. And I think that's what this is really about. Governor emoluments clause she went there the emoluments clause yeah this is cuckoo cuckoo for cocoa puffs uh just 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 bizarre nonsense uh from the view but that's what the, the left is telling themselves i've been seeing them doing this on social media as well here in fact in the stimulus package uh there is a prohibition on um, members of congress their families and the president and his family and any entities in which they have financial interests from taking advantage of the stimulus program now uh the whole Hold up on this was that they had to draft uh, the agreements based on what uh, the uh, members of Congress came up with. They had to put it in legal language. That took the hold up. It's going to pass today, though. Uh, there will be $250 billion set aside for direct payments for individuals and families, $350 billion in small business loans, $250 billion in unemployment insurance benefits, and $500 billion in loans for distressed companies. I I'm hoping maybe we can carve out some money for, for emotional support for the women on the view as well the stimulus bill has a provision this is i'm reading from cnn now directly 
The stimulus bill has a provision that would block President Donald Trump and his family, as well as other top government officials and members of Congress, from getting loans or investments from Treasury programs in the stimulus. The package would be the most significant legislative action taken to address the virus crisis, which is overwhelming hospitals and grinding much of the economy to a halt. Uh, Larry Kudlow, one of the president's advisors, called the package the single largest Main Street assistance program in the history of the United States. Under the plan, individuals who earn $75,000 in adjusted gross income or less would get direct payments of $1,200 each. Married couples earning up to $150,000 would get $2,400 and an additional $500 per child, um, whether single or married. The payment would scale down by income, phasing out entirely at $99,000 for single people and $198,000 for couples uh, without children. When the final bill text hasn't been released, some of the areas uh, have been debated behind closed doors for days while the final text hasn't been released. Uh, the debate uh, stemmed over $500 billion in loans for distressed companies with $50 billion in loans for passenger air carriers. Democrats contended there wasn't enough oversight, so the president agreed to an oversight board and an inspector general to make sure the money is spent the way it is supposed to be spent. The bill will ensure Small Business Administration could serve as a guarantor for loans of up to $10 billion for small businesses to ensure they can maintain payrolls and pay off debts. In addition, the bill would provide major amounts of funding for hospitals, $130 billion for hospitals and $150 billion for state and local governments that are cash strapped due to their response. The Democrats largely abandoned uh, what they were planning on putting in and, and as far as uh, aviation standards and funding for Planned Parenthood. A number of Republican senators actually came out last night and said it would be an absolute deal breaker if they funded Planned Parenthood in this. That's why the Democrats were trying to hold it up. They wanted to fund Planned Parenthood. You know, I've got to tell you, in all honesty, y'all are going to think I'm flipping on here, but I'm actually somewhat serious in this. Uh, the, given the, the death toll of the virus globally— if they shut this thing down over Planned Parenthood, I mean, the virus could wind up saving more people because of the number of people that Planned Parenthood kills on a daily basis in this country alone. Uh, Planned Parenthood kills more people in a year in this country than this virus has killed globally so far. So uh, there, there's putting it in perspective for you. Um, but they apparently scrapped that provision. Now, here's the nutshell problem. How does this pass the House of Representatives? Well, when you got legislation in Congress, there are two ways, there are three ways to pass legislation. There's the voice vote, there's the roll call vote, and there's the unanimous consent option. Uh, who's going to be the turd in the punch bowl among Republicans or Democrats who goes down and objects to passing this by unanimous consent in the House? Somebody will. You know, somebody will. Uh, unanimous consent is you bring it to the floor and say, I ask by unanimous consent that this pass, no one objects, it passes. Well, that's what they want to do because, uh, they don't want people to come back. The virus is spreading through Capitol Hill. Now you've got members of Congress's staff have it. Members of Congress have it. Members of, of the house, members of the Senate, they, they are, they're all starting to get this. A member of the secret service has it. A member of the Capitol police has it. They don't want these old people in Congress to come back. But if someone goes to the floor of the house and objects to unanimous consent, well, then they got to do something. So what they would want to do is do a voice vote. Well, with a voice vote, all it is, is, is the eyes or the nays. So what you can have is a situation where all in favor say, aye, aye, all in opposed say no, no. And the speaker says, oh yeah, I think I heard more yays than nays there. And so I'm going to give it to them. Well, if that happens, then someone can request a roll call vote. 
And if it's a roll call vote that's needed, then every member of the House of Representatives has to come into that chamber wearing hazmat suits, I would presume, uh, in order to get this going. Uh, Goodness gracious. Uh, They don't want to do that. They would prefer that that not happen. And and they're concerned. Now, the Republicans in the House are saying they will go along with it, but they can't control individual members. So an individual member could march down to the floor of the House and and object, forcing a roll call vote, and then make a motion for um, for a... Roll, they could object and do a voice vote, and then you could object to a voice vote and do a roll call vote, and that's all super problematic. They don't want to do that. They would much prefer to have unanimous consent in the Senate as well. Now, it looks like they're probably going to do unanimous consent in the Senate out of respect for the members who are in quarantine. Mitt Romney has uh, tested negative for the coronavirus. In fact, i got to read you this tweet from the president. The president just tweeted this out. This is really great news. I am happy. I can barely speak. He may have been a terrible presidential candidate and an even worse U.S. senator, but he is a rhino and I like him a lot. That's that's Donald Trump tweeting out the news that Mitt Romney has tested negative for the virus. Mike Lee is still in quarantine and Romney has to be in quarantine for another week, even though he's tested negative for the virus so far. This all comes because Rand Paul tested positive and hang out, hung out with a number of senators uh, after his test before it came back. It was very much the Brandon Beach situation here in the state Senate. Uh, luckily, though, no other members of the Senate have thus far tested positive. Uh, Amy Klobuchar's husband, the senator who was running for president, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, her husband has tested positive, and a couple of Senate staffers have tested positive now. Several members of the House of Representatives have tested positive. Uh, members of staff of members of the House of Representatives have tested positive. The virus is clearly spreading on Capitol Hill. They don't want to stay there. Very much like the Georgia Capitol, uh, ventilation and whatnot in the U.S. Capitol isn't the greatest thing. It is a very old building, a 200-year-old building. They want to move as quickly out of there as possible. But there's a problem. There's a problem. There's something else they have to do. Okay, I promise. Life has gotten busy. I've been bad about getting out the recipes. I will get out the recipes to those of you on the recipe list uh, also if you want all the the links that i provided in the first half uh, my daily email i'm sending out on all the uh, COVID-19 updates, uh, the links to Johns Hopkins University's global dashboard of the viral spread, <clears throat> and the link to the Department of Public Health in Georgia and their county-by-county county audit. Text the word DATA to 33777. Text DATA to 33777, uh, and I will make sure you get that information. I will text it right back to you with my handy system I use. Now, I would like to go to Michael in Kennesaw. You're going to be up first this morning. Welcome. Hi, how are you today? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, my question is, uh, one of the things I cannot find uh, in the bill is, are they when they talk about the means testing, are they basing your, uh, it on, I guess, 2018, but also is it based on your gross income? Is it based on after deductions? Uh, after how, deductions, how adjusted doing? gross income after deductions. And the one thing they're doing is if you file your taxes for 2019, they will base it on your 2019 taxes instead of your 2018 taxes. But since most people haven't filed 2019, they'll go with your most recently filed tax return. Okay, most recently. And how does it work with the children? Uh, you get uh, 500 extra dollars if you have children. It's not per child. It's just $500 extra if you have children. Now, does that have anything to do with your gross versus your net, or is it automatic? Th- that's automatic 500 No, No net, no gross there. 
All right, perfect. All right, thank you very much for your, your uh, time. Absolutely, absolutely. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So there's one thing else that Congress must do. Congress must do another stimulus plan. How about that? Uh, they're already talking about it. They're calling this uh, phase phase three. They're actually calling this one now. I think they're calling it uh, phase three, not phase two. I thought it was phase two. I've heard it referred to as phase three, but they're, they're now referring to talking about uh, phase four. What are they going to do with phase four? They've got several other bills they need to do. One of the big issues is while they're adding some money for airlines, they're not sure they've added enough for airlines. And then they've got other industries that are being very hard hit, including some of the utility companies out there that are not canceling services. Although here in Georgia, interestingly enough, if you're with Flint Electric, uh, Flint Electric is going to turn off your power if you can't pay. There was a story down, I think, uh, 13 WMAZ down in Macon. Let me see. I think I saw it uh, on their website earlier today, Flint Energy. Uh, yep, uh, Flint Energy is one of them. The Georgia Public Service Commission has released a list of utility and other companies that are not postponing, uh, who are not postponing disconnections for a period of relief. Um, Kendrew Queen says his electric utility company, Flint Energy, said they'd cut off his power because of an unpaid bill. Uh, the Georgia Public Service Commission list released a list of utility and other companies who have suspended disconnections. Oh, their subtitle is wrong. Some of the companies suspending disconnected service include Georgia Power, Tri-County EMC, Southern Company, Atlanta Gaslight, Xfinity, Comcast, to name a few. Uh, I've got the list here. Here are the ones. Let's see. Um, according to the Public Service Commission, here are postponements, a list of services that have suspended disconnections. It is subject to change. Uh, Amicalola EMC, Amicalola EMC, I'm saying that wrong, AT&T, Atlanta Gaslight, uh, Canucci EMC, Clayton County Water Authority, Columbus Waterworks, the City of Statesboro, the City of Sylvanus, Cobb EMC, Coweta Fayette EMC, Georgia Power, Habersham EMC, Jackson EMC, the Macon Water Authority, the Noonan Utilities, North Georgia EMC, Okefenokee Rural EMC, Planners Electric Membership Corporation, Tri-County EMC, Scana Energy, Southern Company, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Walton EMC, the Water Utility Management Service, Windstream and Xfinity Comcast, uh, Windstream until May 12th, Comcast for 60 days, Water Utility Management until March 31st. Um, you can go to the Georgia Public Service Commission and find this list, uh, but those are the ones thus far who have decided to postpone disconnects. Uh, if they're not on the list, if I didn't read their name, like, for example, Flint EMC, they are shutting you down. Flint Energy shutting you down if you can't pay your bills during this time. Um, but George Power, uh, Southern Company, Atlanta Gaslight, uh, Comcast even, Comcast, they're the good guys here. Amazing. Now, coming up, uh, you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, the, the Admiral, Admiral Brett Giroir, he is the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, and he is in charge of coordinating COVID-19 diagnostic testing efforts between public health service agencies, the Centers for Disease Control, the FDA, state and local public health authorities, private and public clinical labs. I want to talk to him about what goes into the testing, where people can get it, how the delays are going, how the processes are going. Lots of questions about testing from people. 
I want to get to those and, and the supply chain issues with Admiral Giroir. I have spent a day trying to figure out how to pronounce his name accurately so we can have a great interview. And when we come back, the Admiral will join me here on the Eric Erickson program across the state of Georgia. And welcome back. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, broadcasting from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line across the state of Georgia. Joining me by phone from Washington, D.C., the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Admiral Brett Gerard. Admiral, thanks very much for being with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show this morning. It's it, very busy all over, I'm sure. It is, and I wanted want you to know, be, being from uh, just north of Baton Rouge, I had to look to see how you pronounce your last name, because where I'm from, it's Gerard, and south of Baton Rouge, I know it's Gerard, so I wanted to make sure I had it right for you. I re, I re, you did great. I respond to anything. No no problem. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, so I, I know yeah, that... You pronounce it better than the vice president does, so that's well, that's a good mark. So I, good. I do want you to know, I, I saw a video of Kellyanne Conway last Last night, mentioning you, and I texted her and said, "I pronounce. I'm going to pronounce his name better than you." <laughs> okay, fantastic. All right, Admiral. Uh, I know the you, the White House, and uh, Secretary Azar have put you in charge of testing around the country. What can you give us as far as the lay of the land goes? Well, uh, testing is really uh, accelerating quite quite rapidly, as as we expected. Uh, it started testing really started as something that only the CDC can do. And now the large reference laboratories that uh, over 90% of hospital systems use have been up and running. And as of yesterday, we had o- over 300, and I believe the number is 369,000 tests done in the U.S., so ramping up very, very rapidly. It's still very important to know, though, that not everybody who wants a test should get a test because we really uh, need to preserve our capacity for those who are hospitalized or sick or healthcare workers, first responders, or those who are elderly and symptomatic. Um, eventually, uh, testing will be broad broad spectrum and potentially something you could even do at home and send in. It's not there now, but it's very important uh, for the people who need to get tested to get tested. And again, we have large and expanding capacity every day. Now, one of the things that I hear from some people out there is that at this point, what's the point because the virus has probably spread so much. Um, what's your take on that line of reasoning? Well, um, for individuals, it, it depends. Number one, it depends where you are, right? There are certain communities in certain states that they still don't have a case. So if you have a suspected case, uh, you, you want to diagnose that and be able to contain them, quarantine them. In places where it's all over you know, the place and spreading quite rapidly, um, like the New York cities of the world, um, it's much more important to focus testing on those for whom it will make a difference either to their care or how the care system cares for them. For example, if there's a patient in a hospital, uh, if they're positive, they may qualify for experimental drug therapy or, or other things that you would do. If they're negative, you might do other things to them like accelerate antibiotics, give them steroids, all those sorts of things, so very important. And also, if you know a patient is positive, it really uh, helps the healthcare workers to protect themselves, to use the appropriate personal protective equipment, et cetera. If you're negative, um, you can go in a clean part of the hospital and all that doesn't matter, right? So, mm-hmm. so testing is important, but it really depends on the community you're in, on how it's employed. And that's why public health is sort of a local and state thing, because it is different where you are in the stage of the outbreak. 
Now, one of the people I know who is a dear friend who sings your praises is the former Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who is <laughs> governor of Texas, um, uh, created their Task Force on Infectious Disease Preparedness and, and put you in charge of it. And he's mentioned your name more than once. And uh, as someone who knows how to anticipate uh, pandemic disease, and I guess in particular the situation there was when Ebola was uh, Ebola right. patients were coming in. Exactly. Um, how do you develop plans to do this sort of thing? What do you look at? So um, the the plans for, you know, since uh, the mid-2000s, um, the nation and, and really every state has developed what we call pandemic influenza plans. And although this is an influenza, it's very similar um, in many ways because it's a droplet respiratory spread. Um, it's a respiratory lung disease. It has many characteristics of a pandemic flu, meaning that no one's immune to it because it'd be, it's a brand new strain. So um, th this is really what we've been doing for 15 years. Now, as you remember, uh, uh, people say, you know, your plans change when the first shot is fired, right? Mm -hmm. So, But it's good to have that plan and to understand and rehearse. And every year, there's national rehearsals about how to run through the pandemic scenarios. So... Um, it's very important that we've done this because not that we know all the answers, but at least people are thinking about it and have symptoms and approaches, systems and approaches to, to how to attack the problem. So many things we know. We have a stockpile of personal protective equipment. We have a stockpile of ventilators. You know, we have things, distribution systems. All those things are in place. But again, this is of unprecedented scale um, that we're facing now, certainly in certain areas like New York City and growing areas like uh, in Louisiana, Washington, uh, Michigan, New Jersey. Uh, but we have planned, we have a playbook. The playbook serves as a guide. You can't follow it perfectly because you can't anticipate what's happening. But, you know, th there are groups of people, supplies, processes in place that we, we rehearse and we generally follow. Now, the media, I think, has taken the president's remarks yesterday about opening the country back up around Easter, somewhat out of context, where he said he was going to listen to the experts, that that's what he would like to do. He's not sure that's the date. Uh, what goes into looking at, at when it's safe for people essentially to come back out of their houses? So um, so I wasn't with the president yesterday, uh, so I, I was not at that news conference, but I, I, I'll, I'll just interpret what I heard, is that um, – there are there are a lot of factors that need to be taken into account. Um, we are, you know, uh, one of them is where you are in the infectivity curve, right? So that is very important. But you know, if we wanted to say that there's zero chance of any coronavirus happening in the country, you know, you could be you can close the country down for an extended period of time. There has to be a balance between what is the risk, and that's the scientific and epidemiology. Um, versus what we need to do as a country. So I think all factors need to be weighed. Remember, the best thing that you could do for health overall is to have the economy going, get people jobs, have them, have them you know, doing things. So there, there's a lot of factors to weigh in that clearly is a task force recommendation and a presidential decision. But I have never uh, – I've worked with the president a lot. He is always uh, keenly listening to scientists and medical advisors. He doesn't shut anyone out. He asked everyone's opinion. He listens to it critically, and I, I have very—I'm uh, very confident that that this will be a, a good decision made on the basis of science and all factors. 
Admiral, and for those just tuning in, I'm talking to Admiral Brett Girard. He's the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services right now. And it's I, I've somewhat remarked to, for example, Senator Leffler, who was appointed by Governor Kemp here in Georgia to be in the Senate, that none of us saw this this situation coming. Uh, even in December, uh, there were starting to be warning signs in, in China. And what information goes into the processes, uh, much like you talked about earlier in planning for pandemics, you start seeing the situation situation happening in China. We we suspect they weren't quite as candid as they, well, we know they weren't quite as candid as they should have been, but what goes into it given your position, uh, the level of feedback and information that starts coming in to start realizing something's going on? Well, it's, it's like any uh, operation. You try to get as much information as possible, and clearly um, uh, much of the eyes and ears were, were the CDC um, who have direct contacts and people, you know, uh, on the ground in, in China, but very good contacts with Chinese CDC. Um, you piece together information that you can get in the open press uh, on the uh, social media sites. But I think this is the question you're, you're answering. Until China really opened up and became transparent, um, you try to put together the best information you could um, and, and start, planning, start planning in that way. The things you didn't know very early was the infectivity. You know, how many people do normal people infect? How quickly it's spreading? what are kind of the symptom patterns, et cetera. Um, and again, uh, we would, of course, like to know that very, very early. Uh, but, you know, we did have some, you know, some view in from the sources that I said, and we began to, to plan accordingly. You know, Secretary Azar, uh, our secretary, took this uh, very seriously, as, as we all did. Um, and we really engaged in planning from the moment we heard something. But, of course, when the information got out much more readily about what it was, and certainly when the genes for the uh, virus became available, then everything went into full swing. Once you had the gene sequence, we can start on a vaccine, and that was done immediately. Now, a lot of people, we're entering this contrarian mode where we've been a week of people having to sit on their couch and they're already ready uh -huh. to get get back out. And I'm, I'm hearing people out there now say, in fact, the Wall Street Journal has a has an op-ed out today that, well, maybe it's really not as, as bad as we think and more people probably have it than we know and testing hasn't been good. Uh, what's your take on, on that line of thinking? Um, my take is uh, don't be foolish. Um, this is absolutely serious. Uh, the rate of increase, for example, in New York City, is uh, is is uh, is is doubling about every day uh, the number of deaths or, or more that we're seeing. Um, uh, we're still seeing people getting you know infected, and for most people, uh, this is not going to be a serious disease. But for the elderly uh, or those with chronic conditions, and some who are young, you know this is definitely a life-threatening disease. We do not have clear medications against it, although there are some that are hopeful. We do not have a vaccine. What we do know that works is the kind of social distancing, um, stopping travel, staying in your home as much as possible, not gathering in groups. That will work. If we are foolish enough to disregard that because we don't think it's a real problem, then this could be catastrophic for the country. So I think people really need to heed the president's advice, the advice coming from the task force. 15 days, right? And we'll evaluate it. But that 15 days is critically important, and it's our major weapon to stop this outbreak. Last question for you. I know supplies around the country in hospitals are tight. My wife is someone who has been upstairs sewing cloth masks um, 
for her doctor and friend nurses to put over their uh, disposable ones just to preserve them longer. And I know there are a lot of people around the country. In fact, uh, elastic is running slow as or running short as a, as a result. And there are some people online I'm seeing saying, oh, you should take out the, the antiviral filters from air conditioner filters and sew those into masks and things like that. Are, are, are people doing more harm than good with some of these things or should they yeah. keep that up? Yeah, I, they, they there are there are ways to protect yourself and there are ways not to, and and there are some clear guidelines on on CDC. Um, it's very important to preserve what masks we have for the people at risk. So, um, if you're a layperson not interacting, stay at home. You don't need to buy masks, right? We need to have masks for the people who are in the healthcare system, those who are sick and need to have a mask to protect them from spewing uh, the virus all, all over. There are many alternatives popping up. I think the, the president announced a few days ago the Haynes Company has a cotton mask that they're going to make in millions of quantities coming out um, that, have, that are impregnated with copper and, I think, zinc ions that, that are very highly antimicrobial. These will be coming out in the millions and millions and millions. I, I know here at FEMA we've been scouring the globe and have uh, uh, obtained really massive supplies from around around the world, uh, getting supply chains back together, as well as accelerating industry. And the process that goes by, it's very orderly at FEMA. That's why we're here, is that the states, the states understand what they need to make a request through FEMA, and we distribute it. So we have been able to keep up with requests, and it's very important to follow the process because this is a huge you know, this is this is the invasion of Normandy, but uh, on a healthcare kind of scenario. It's it's that complex. Uh, it requires that much logistics. We have the logistics lead, Admiral Polacek, from uh, from the Joint Staff, who's running our logistics. So this is no kidding, all hands on deck. So I think we're going to keep be keep. We certainly are increasing our supplies. Um, we're finding supplies around the globe, and right now we're keeping up with demand as we see it as requests come in. Well, Admiral, listen, thank you for taking some time out with us today. I really appreciate it. I know your schedule is tight and busy, but this has been quite informative. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, look forward to it. Okay, and thanks for the name pronunciation. You did a great job. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Admiral Bredgerois, he is the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, fascinating background. I, I didn't want to take time in his interview to, to give you all of his background, but as I mentioned, uh, he is uh, an, a four-star admiral in the Public Health Service Commission Corps. He worked uh, as the head of uh, viral spread, uh, what is the exact title uh, there, the Texas Task Force on Infectious Disease Preparedness and Response. Uh, he also worked for DARPA for a number of years. He was full time as the deputy director of defense sciences office uh from 2007 to 2008 uh he he studied man uh unconventional pathogen countermeasures to develop new approaches to vaccines uh he worked on surviving blood loss to extend the golden hour of trauma worked on peak soldier performance to explore natural and nutritional mechanisms to maintain warfighter performance uh, worked on predicting health and disease to develop pre-symptomatic diagnosis for infectious disease. It, it's funny how people like this just wind up in the right place at the right time. And a part of this is is the president puts people in. All presidents do it, not just this president. They put the people in who are best able to to handle jobs. 
And he is definitely someone who is able to handle the job. He also was with the Defense Sciences Study Group, uh, working with NASA on the space biological technologies, among other things. So a fascinating, fascinating background. Uh, the only downside is he's an Aggie, um, but that that's we'll give him a pass on that one. Uh, but he was born in Louisiana, so i got to give him a pass. Admiral Brett Girard, uh, really appreciated him stopping by and the White House for reaching out to us to get him on with us. It is 50. Three after the hour, and I want to go to the phones here as we can wrap this up. I want to go to Mike. Welcome, Mike. How are you? Hey, Eric. Good to hear from you, buddy. Thank you. What's going on? Uh, nothing. I'm a long-time listener. But anyway, I got two questions. Uh, okay, does people on food stamps get that check? And then uh, the other question is, I actually... Uh, got fired from one job for being late and I went to work for this man that don't take taxes out. So how do I go about getting any money like that? Not, not, not paying no taxes in the last couple of years. Oh, so my under now, have you filed any tax returns? Not lately. Okay. Um, so my understanding, and, and don't hold me to this, Mike, because I hadn't seen the full text of the law, but I've just read the, the background briefings from the Senate and from the White House on this. Uh, people who are on assistance will get checks, and, and everyone else, your check will be determined based on your federal tax filings. Now, I suspect... If you have a social security number and you haven't filed taxes because you've had no income with which to file taxes, you would qualify. However, if it's a situation where you've had the income and you haven't filed the taxes, you obviously probably need to talk to a tax lawyer uh, on that situation. Um, largely because if you've got a revenue stream and you're filing 1099s or you're taking money under the table, you could have some problems if you go trying to get money from the federal government right now. That That's part of the problem. Um, but it, everyone else is going to be based on your most recent tax filing. That was one of the hangups on the legislation. Uh, is do you premise it on 2018 taxes or do you premise it on the most recent taxes? And if you premise it on the most recent taxes, uh, then a lot of people's situations change between the 2018 file and 2019 file. Now, for people who have never filed taxes before, I'm not a lawyer. I used to be a lawyer. I, this is not legal advice uh, for folks in Mike's situation. If you've never filed taxes before, now is probably not the time to go asking the federal government uh, for $1,200. Why? Because they're going to wonder why you are not on the tax rolls. And they're going to start asking questions. And you probably need to be careful with that. Now, I happen to know someone who was in a similar situation who hadn't had money. It was a cash only business and had never paid taxes. And what his accountant, this, I'm, I swear I'm not talking about me or anyone in my family. <laughs> what, what this guy's accountant recommended he do is that he start, get a, get a incorporated business, start filing taxes slowly over time, uh, you've got like a seven, I think it's a seven year statute of limitations. And essentially the account advice to this friend of mine was you need to start 
pay in a little into the system over time and build up every year to make it look like you're growing a profit for your business. Uh, do it do it as straight as you possibly can uh, to eventually you get to the point where you're not on the government's radar screen. If you pop up on the government's radar screen right now and you haven't paid taxes and you've been taking money, uh, particularly if you've only been a cash-only business, the person you're getting the money from is going to be in trouble. And you're probably going to be in trouble when the IRS comes calling uh, to figure out where, why you need this money and why you haven't been paying taxes. So be careful. Though, and listen, I understand there are many people in this situation. Uh, let, let's not pretend this is an, an anomalous situation. There are people in this situation who they have it. They've been getting. They get paid cash, and it's not reported. And the IRS, they're not on the IRS radar screen. They've, they've kept off the radar screen, and that's not a bad thing for them. But if they ever got on the radar screen for the IRS, they'd be in a world of hurt. All right. Now, I, I want to I mention to you real quick, uh, you, you want a sense of this virus. I mentioned the case down in Albany, Georgia, where uh, there was a funeral. Actually, I believe it was two funerals and one preacher. The preacher was infectious. And the spread that's happened down in the Darty County area has largely come out of this funeral and the people who then left the funeral and infected other people. You've got this huge now spread down there. It looks like they're going to put everyone in lockdown in Darty and Lee County and the surrounding counties. But there's also this story out of Arkansas. 34 individuals who have connections to an Arkansas church have been diagnosed with COVID-19, and the number is expected to climb higher. Uh, Donald Shipp, a deacon at First Assembly of God in Greers Ferry, Arkansas, told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, all 34 attended a kids' crusade event on March 6th through the 8th. Among those infected are the pastor, Mark Polinski, and his wife, Dina. Now, this happened, my kids were still in school at the time. This is before they closed down. Uh, this happened before the CDC was telling people to socially isolate, uh, and this virus has spread because it's that contagious. Remember, it is more contagious than the flu. The flu infects 1.3 people for every one person. This infects three for every one person. That's how much the virus has infected people. So please do stay safe out there, socially distance, isolate, wash your hands, all of that stuff. And you should be safe, I hope. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson. Welcome, welcome. It is six after the hour. Let's get going because there's a lot of stuff. Uh, the phone number, if you want to call into the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, as always, I'm starting the show right now with the audit of counties around the state so you can keep track of how the virus may or may not be spreading into the various counties. Uh, I want to do that. I also want to tell you, you can get access to the data very easily. I've tried to make it accessible to everyone. If you text the word data to the number 33777, uh, I will send you back three links. One is to a daily email that you can subscribe to. You can subscribe for free if you want the basic stuff. If you want the detailed stuff, it's 7 bucks a month or $70 for a year. Uh, I don't want to profit off the COVID-19 stuff, though, but I, I've been doing some deep dive stuff for subscribers in addition to the general stuff. The second link is to this, the Georgia Department of Public Health website. The third one is to the Johns Hopkins University Medical Dashboard Globally. Uh, here's where we are. These numbers will update at noon today and then again at 7 p.m. Uh, this number was updated at 7 p.m. last night. We've got 1,097 cases in Georgia, 361 of them hospitalized, 38 of them dead. That puts the mortality rate at 3.4%, which is actually in line with the global average right now, but not a lot of cases. 57% uh, of cases are under the age of 60. 
Now, uh, here is where we have the, the viral spread county by county. 191 in Fulton, 107 in DeKalb, 101 in Doherty, 90 in Cobb, 76 in Bartow, 46 in Gwinnett, 30 in Cherokee, 26 in Carroll, 24 in Lee, 21 in Clayton, 17 in Clark, 16 in Hall, 13 in Henry, 12 in Douglas, 12 in Fayette, 12 in Floyd, 11 in Lowndes, 10 in Coweta, 10 in Richmond, 8 in Forsyth, 8 in Gordon, 8 in Polk, 8 in Rockdale, 7 in Chatham, which has just gone on lockdown, by the way, uh, 6 in Columbia, 6 in Lawrence, 6 in Newton, 6 in Paulding, 6 in Troop, 5 in Early, Glen, Houston, Oconee, and Spalding, 4 in Bibb, Mitchell, Muskogee, Pickens, Sumter, Tift, and Worth, 3 in Baker, Crisp, Effingham, Lamar, Lumpkin, Monroe, Peach, Terrell, Baldwin, Barrow, Bryan, Butts, Coffee, Seminole, Stevens, and Whitfield, and then one in each of these counties. Ben Hill, Burke, Camden, Catoosa, Charlton, Chattooga, Clinch, Colquitt, Dawson, Fanning, Green, Harris, Hurd, Irwin, Jasper, Liberty, Lincoln, Macon, Madison, Merriweather, Miller, Morgan, Pierce, Pulaski, Randolph, Tattnall, Telfair, Turner, Twiggs, Walton, and Washington. There are 79 uh, whose residents are unknown. Uh, I keep waiting for Tolliver County. And the reason I keep waiting for Tolliver County is, for those of you who don't know where it is, uh, one, it's just proof that I know how to pronounce the name, but two... <laughs> There's actually a story there. I dated a girl when I was in college. I dated a girl from, from Tolliver County, and I made the mistake of calling it Talia Farrow, and I never thought I would ever live it down. Um, so I keep waiting, and the reason I keep waiting for Tolliver to, to show up is because it had been one of those counties surrounded by counties that had nothing. Well, now uh, Greene County has the, the virus. There's one case in Greene County. Greene County is Lake Oconee. Uh, Greensboro, that area. And Tolliver County is one county over. And it is surrounded on all sides by counties without the virus, uh, except now bordering Greene County. The other one I'm interested in is Warren County, Warrington, uh, because that too, in Warrington, just so you know, uh, Warrington is, has I-20 running through it. It touches no counties that have the virus. And so I've kind of been watching these to get a sense of the spread. And at the same way, um, what do you do about these counties when there really isn't an impact there? Or for example, what do you do with Hancock County? Hancock State Prison's there. You got Sparta is there. Um, do you, why put that whole place down in lockdown? Why put Straw's Barbecue on lockdown in Sparta uh, or the Ace Hardware in downtown Sparta when there are no cases in the county? And that's what the governor's been dealing with. That was part of our interview yesterday when I talked to him is he doesn't want to shut down the whole state. He wants to let individual counties decide for themselves because there are some counties where the virus has not spread. If it does spread, it'll be just a couple of people. Um, so why punish those counties economically, uh, particularly because most of them are rural counties already uh, in, on difficult times? So why do that to them? And I think it makes sense. Take Montgomery County, for example. Um, Montgomery County is in South Georgia. Mount Vernon is down there. It is, uh, for perspective, it's south of I-16. Uh, next county over is Vidalia. It has Vidalia in it, Tombs County, Vidalia, um, and Montgomery County is, is surrounded by counties that are also virus-free. It's rural, doesn't have a lot of uh, major industry down there. Bruton Parker College is down there, uh, but why punish Montgomery County? 
uh, and force it to completely shut down when it has no cases. That's what the, the governor is uh, concerned with. Now, let me go to the phones here because Jason's got a relevant question. Jason from Noonan, welcome to the program. How you doing, Eric? I appreciate everything you're doing for us out Thank there. Thank you. Um, I got a question. I, I missed the interview with the governor yesterday, and mm-hmm. my uncle called me because he's listening to you, and he said that there was a comment made that the governor feels like there was, and I could be wrong on this, but he, he felt the governor said that he has reason to believe that the virus came in our area around December and January. Was that is that what was stated or not? I, yes, I uh, yeah, the, the governor, there's increasing suspicion that it was probably spreading in the Atlanta area in December and January. Okay, that's what I had heard because I, I had my dad had uh, got sick uh, about that time, and he was and he kept he passed away for uh, you know, but he but he had about that time he was telling us he said don't come around us he said he said I've got something that I don't know what I've got and now he had underlying heart issues too you know so he was in and he kept telling us don't come visit me I'll call you on the phone this that, and the other. And I was, and I can only speculate, of course, because it was right. out there. You know, nothing was known about it. But I was just curious if, that, if that's what was said, because I was going to see if there's any um, definite evidence on how how he came across that. Because I'm just so you know, we're, we're going to go with I'll, heart. Jason, I'll, I'll tell you the theory behind it, which I'm kind of intrigued by. And, and Georgia was one of the first states, I think, to do this. They went back through all of the negative flu tests from December and January. Uh, And what they found, uh, I am told reliably, I can't get anybody on the record on this and I'm trying, uh, but I am told Uh reliably that they decided when this started spreading that they could use the flu as a proxy because so many people are getting flu-like symptoms and they don't have the flu. And they saw a spike in uh, flu reports. So they decided, well, why don't we go back and see about the spike in flu reports? And so you go back to December and you start towards the the end of December and into January. Uh, as this virus is spreading, people are coming here from, from China and South Korea and Italy on direct flights. Uh, they're getting into the population, and what we're seeing is that there was a spike in in people with flu-like symptoms who tested negative for the flu towards the after Christmas into January, and so well, the exactly, no, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, that, that that's exactly the timing because we were down. Of course, the hospital down here noon is great, but we were down there and it was packed. I mean, just packed down there, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were, and, you know, we're going through. Of course, they were giving us masks out then. I mean, everybody was sitting in the mat with with masks on. They got to get a little bit ahead of the game because I've been in the I've been in many hospitals uh, through time. You know, because I'm a, I'm a minister, so I go visit people a lot too. But I've never been in a hospital. I used to, I told my buddies I said, I've never sat in an emergency room full of people with masks on you know right. and they were doing that back in december january so i was just curious that if that was what was said because i mean it, it like i said it, it's it's not a bad thought i just was mm-hmm. wondering if there's any documentation around it so yeah. i appreciate that yeah absolutely jason thanks very much for the phone call so so that that's the thinking now and by the way this is this is educated speculation on their part they can't prove it uh and once you've had the virus you can't go back through and test people uh, once the virus is out of someone's system, you, you, the the COVID nineteen test returns a negative result. You got to have it, and we weren't testing people until March, and we are testing people now. And I mean, in in Coweta County, Jason's calling from Noonan. There are only ten cases there, uh, but the cases have exploded in Fulton County. Now, there's an upside here that some of you are already jumping to. Um. The upside is that if it's spread 
since the end of December into January and February in Georgia, the mortality rate is probably a lot less. Now, Jason's father passed away. Dr. Fauci, who everyone respects and everyone thinks is a straight shooter, Dr. Fauci says he thinks uh, the virus is more common than we realize, that most of the cases are mild, and that uh, the mortality rate is probably 1%. So in Georgia right now and, and globally, the mortality rate right now globally is th- right over 3%. And Georgia right now is matching that. But you take into account New York City, and in New York, based on the diagnosed cases, the mortality rate is 1%. Let me, let me run the numbers real quick here um, on the fly here. So globally... There are 19,675 deaths so far. There are 438,749 confirmed cases. That is a 4.5% mortality rate. Um, You take out the Chinese data, it reduces it to, it actually shoots it up to about 5%, if I'm honest with you. Um, But when you start looking at just Western European nations, you take out some of the third world country data, and you look at the Western nations, the mortality rate goes to about 3%. And if Dr. Fauci is right that this is more widely spread and less understood and less tested, uh, it would reduce the mortality rate to about 1%. That's not bad. Now, the problem, though, and for a lot of people out there thinking, well, hey, why then don't we just treat this like the seasonal flu? One, I, I'm realizing from talking to friends of mine, and and you probably you may need to be disabused of the notion yourself. And I don't mean this insultingly or disparagingly, but a lot of people are talking about this as as well. This is just the flu, and they're comparing it to H1N1. H1N1 was the flu pandemic during the Obama administration that swept through, uh, and it had a mortality rate just like the flu of about a, a tenth to to three tenths of a percent of people would die of H1N1. In fact, it got to the point where um, they were able to test with the flu to figure out how many people got it. And a lot of people were getting H1N1, not getting the flu. But here's what you need to understand though. H1N1 is influenza. It's a strain of influenza. There's H1N1, H1N2, H2N2, H2N3. These are all strains of influenza. COVID-19 is not an influenza. We talk about flu-like symptoms because the symptoms present as the flu, but it's not the flu. And that's the real disconnect for a lot of people, I think, is that we're not actually talking about the flu here. We're talking about a completely different virus that is unrelated to the flu. The symptoms look like the flu, but it's unrelated to the flu. It's something different. It's something more deadly, 10 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. And that has to enter into the conversation, and it enters into the conversation about the issue of the president and whether or not uh, we should close down the country. Now, before we get there, though, I want to play Dr. Burks because this comment from her is not getting a lot of attention, and it probably should with regards to testing. I just want to speak to the Americans for just a second, though. We have to ensure that we still are testing, even though... Probably by today, we will have done more tests than South Korea did in eight weeks, in the last eight yeah. days. In the last eight mm-hmm. days, mm-hmm. we've done more testing than South Korea. But we did that because we transformed the testing process as the president spoke to. But we don't want people who are just worried to go get tested. If you don't have a persistent fever, if you don't have a cough, if you're not in the risk group, if you're not a nurse or doctor, we really want the testing and the drive-through testing and the testing that is provided in the cities to be very much still focused on the people who need it. Because there's only so much even those high-throughput machines are doing. They're doing about 50, 60, 70,000 tests a day now. They could get potentially to 150,000 a day. 
but we want to make sure mm -hmm. we're testing in the areas that really have the problems. There you go. There you go. Um, it is remarkable that we've been able to get this far. And what's so aggravating to me is there are a lot of people saying, well, why were we doing that back in January? So why did South Korea get farther than us? What did the president do? I, I do hope people understand. And I, I know that the president breaks people. And, you know, I'm, I'm not an overwhelming fan at times of the president. There are things I like. There are things I don't like. But um, in all honest to goodness, the situation here is this was not the president's fault. There are plenty of things you can blame the president for in life. This is not one of them. Uh, this was the FDA, the CDC, the bureaucracy that wants to dot every I and cross every T and doesn't want to speed things up. The president had to intervene to make them speed things up. But please do understand, for all the things that you can complain about with the president, and there are many, this is not one of them. This was not the president's fault. And it shows you to the extent the media is carrying water for the left, just how willing they are to blame the president for this sort of thing when he had no responsibility. This was the federal bureaucracy in place with careerists who were there for Bush, Obama, and Trump. And suddenly it's this president's fault that the career bureaucracy, if anything, this should show us that in civil service reform, we need the president to be able to fire people more expeditiously uh, than we're allowed, than he's allowed under the federal service, civil service law. You can call in. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. What about Easter? What about Easter? What about shutting it down? I want to play for you what the president actually said, because it sure is getting misquoted by the media. Uh, and, you know, again, if you you should check out the video, uh, which if you text data to three, three, seven, 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 the very first link I send back is to a website called Substack. It's, it's you'll see ewerickson.substack.com. That's the daily newsletter I'm sending out to people. It's subscription based, but I'm sending out a lot of free content as well, including this video in, in the very top post. If you go to that link, you would find it. You can see it for yourself. And I want to play the full quote from the president in context so you get a sense of what he's actually saying. During our town hall today, you threw out a date where you think America can be working again. And that's Easter Sunday. Yeah. That's 19 days from now. How did you come up with so, that day? Well, it's 19 days, but add another seven because we've been doing this now for seven. So that's from the time we heard about it. Seven to nine. From the time yeah. we, yes, so from the time we, we close it up. So you could add seven to nine. Uh, look, Easter's a very special day for me. And I see it's sort of in that timeline that I'm thinking about. And I say, wouldn't it be great to have all of the churches full? You know, the churches aren't allowed, essentially, to have much of a congregation there. And most of them, I watched on Sunday, online. And he was terrific, by the way. But online is never going to be like being there. So I think Easter Sunday, and you'll have packed churches all over our country. I think it would be a beautiful time. And it's just about the timeline that I think is right. It gives us more chance to work on what we're doing. And I'm not sure that's going to be the day, but I would love to aim it right at Easter Sunday. So we're open for church service and services generally on Easter Sunday. That would be a beautiful thing. Notice what he actually said. He didn't say we were going to do it. He didn't say it was going to happen. That's, that's aspirational. I mean, his exact quote here, 
it gives us more chance to work on what we're doing. And I'm not sure that's going to be the day, but I would love to aim it right at Easter Sunday. I'm not sure that's going to be the day. If you listen to the major media coverage today, they're treating it as if the president said it is a date certain. They're treating it as if the president said today's the day. Easter Sunday is the day we're going to resurrect the American economy. That's not what he said. It's not at all what the president said. What the president said was, I'm not sure that's going to be the day. Now, he held the press conference at the White House yesterday. And again, the president said he'd like to do Easter Sunday. But there are a lot of factors that come into it. If we can, if we can, if is a conditional word. It means that certain things have to happen for it to happen. Certain things have to happen for people to go back to work on Easter Sunday. That's what it means. And the fact that the media wants to treat it as a date certain and then trot out people. I mean, this is what CNN and MSNBC have both done. Is that they, Sanjay Gupta was on CNN last night saying that this would be bad if we did this, if we haven't gotten it contained. And again, if, if, if. On MSNBC, they were much more direct blasting the president for saying this. That it was building false hope. That it was irresponsible. That we can't do it. By the way, one of the things that I'm noticing is in the, you know how when there's a snowstorm in New York City, uh, Anchorage, Alaska may get five feet of snow and it never makes the front page of the newspaper or the lead story in the ABC Nightly News. But if it get, if you get three snowflakes in New York City, it's going to be a, a front page story and the lead story on the Nightly News. It's the same thing with this viral outbreak. Uh, they are convinced the media is that uh, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket because New York City is. It, it is a very um, region-specific view that leaves out the fact that 62, 63% of cases now are in four states. Uh, something like 50% of the cases are in New York City alone. 60 or 50% of the cases are in New York City. All of the rest of the country combined has fewer cases than New York City. Think about that. Uh, but uh, Washington and now Louisiana and uh, South Florida are having explosions. You know, those kids who are on the beach in South Florida are going home now with coronavirus and spreading it back to their home states, which so many people said they would do, and they have. Um, but uh, the, the, the regional-specific coverage of New York City is deeply disappointing here. We're not getting a real picture of what's happening in the country. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to Tom, waiting patiently on the phone. Welcome. Hi, Eric. Good job. I really appreciate all the information. You're doing a great service. Thank you. Uh, more of a comment, I guess, maybe followed by a question, but uh, I have to travel frequently for my job. Unfortunately, I can't get out of it, um, but every day. You say it. I see it on the news where companies, governments, schools, they're checking everybody's temperatures before they even come in with their digital thermometers. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they don't pass that because they have an elevated temperature, they go home. Mm -hmm. Our biggest factor in transmission appears to be air travel, maybe declining now because people aren't flying. But why aren't airports doing this with, uh, I guess, uh, airport workers, airline crews, passengers especially at TSA checkpoint, check their temperature, if it's too high, above 100, I guess 100.4, you don't come in. 
Look, I totally agree with you. And we've, what, in Atlanta now, we've had three TSA agents themselves exactly who, exactly. who have it uh, and probably were, I mean, they were touching people's luggage. We know it lives on hard surfaces long. Uh, yeah, listen, I think that's a great idea. And frankly, I, I think that is a, a purview where TSA could pass out. Now, the question is, where do they acquire all the, the digital laser thermometers? I've got one I use for my grill and my pizza oven. I'd let them borrow it. Uh, but clearly they could do something. Uh, and, you know, interestingly enough, they were doing it at major checkpoints, uh, international airports, including Atlanta. Uh, they were screening people coming in from China and then in from Milan for a while. And I don't think they're doing that anymore. Maybe they are, but I don't think so. Uh, Tom, let's, I, I think th- that's a that's a no-brainer of an idea. They should be doing that. Now, related to all of that, I want to play a clip here from uh, Governor Andy Bashar of Kentucky talking about some people who haven't been taking this whole situation seriously. There is relevance here. I want to explain it to you after I play the clip. I want to say we still have folks that aren't following the recommendations, and that ultimately hurts all of us. I'm about to do the update today of new cases, but I want to say without identifying which one, We have a positive case today from someone who attended a coronavirus party. And this is the part uh, where I, the person that tell everybody to be calm, have to remain calm myself. (laughs) Because anyone who goes to something like this may think that they are indestructible, but it's someone else's loved one that they are going to hurt. We are battling for the health and even the lives of our parents and our grandparents. And don't be so callous as to intentionally go to something and expose yourself to something that can kill other people. We ought to be much better than that. And folks, I I mean, we all owe each other a duty. We all owe each other a duty to protect each other. And we simply can't have folks that are doing things like this. So uh, this is one that I hope I never have to report on again. This is something that no one should be doing across the Commonwealth. And my job in these press conferences is to talk to you about how we're going to get through it, and we are, and that we're going to do everything we can to protect the lives of those around us. But this is one that makes me mad. Y'all, look, i got to agree with the Democratic governor of Kentucky. It, it, It rather is dumb. Um, And... You shouldn't be doing that. It is. It's just silly. Um, I, I man, y'all. Seriously, seriously, this actually is a serious virus. But here's the thing, and this is why I wanted to play the governor of Kentucky, because we're hearing this from governors around the nation that people are doing things like this, and this is for the governors of the various states. You see, we live in a federal republic, and each state has way more power than the president has to shut things down. Uh, There was a text message that went out two hours ago from the government in New Zealand ordering mandatory shelter in place for the entire nation of New Zealand. In India, the prime minister of India has shut down the entire nation 
The president can't do that in this country. We have a federal republic. Now, the president can if there's a war power enactment uh, by Congress, which hasn't done that. Uh, but right now, the, the power resides with the governors of the several states. And so the governor in California can order a lockdown in California. The governor in Florida can, can order uh, isolation for people who come in from the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, that area. But the president of the United States cannot lock down the entire nation. He can tell the governors to do it, and the governors can choose to or not choose to. But so much of the media coverage is focused on the president needing to make us do this, and in, in, institutionally, he can't. Um, here's the vice president from the other day talking about this. And that is the way our system works. It's extremely important uh, that the American people recognize that one of the things that makes America different uh, is that we have a, a system of federalism and that the, the, by putting FEMA in the lead, the president has emphasized that our response to the coronavirus is in, uh, in the anthem of FEMA, FEMA it is um, locally executed, state managed, and federally supported. We want the people on the ground, the decision makers, to have what they need. We want states to be able to manage the unique circumstances in their states. And whether it be the legislation moving through the Congress or uh, this, the uh, efforts the president announced today, major disaster declarations, Title 32 on the National Guard, resources flowing, hospital beds flowing, we're going to continue to make sure that our states have what they need to meet this moment. So we're going to make sure the states have what they need, but it is the state call. It, it is the call of the states. So, for example, you have Dr. Burks, uh, who the president referred to as maybe the world's greatest expert on what she does, uh, she, a brilliant woman. She, her mentor is Dr. Fauci. Uh, and here's her at the White House press conference yesterday. We remain deeply concerned about New York City and the New York metro area. About 56% of all the cases in the United States are coming out of that metro area, and 60% of all the new cases are coming out of the metro New York area, and 31% of the people succumbing to this um, disease. It means, because they still are at the 31% mortality compared to the other regions of the country, that we can have a huge impact if we unite together. This means, as in all places, they have to be following the presidential guidelines that were put out eight or nine days ago, and this will be critical. But to everyone who has left New York over the last few days, because of the rate of the number of cases, you may have been exposed before you left New York. And I think, like Governor DeSantos has put out today, everybody who was in New York should be self-quarantining for the next 14 days to ensure that the virus doesn't spread to others, no matter where they have gone, whether it's Florida, North Carolina, or out to far, far reaches of Long Island. We are starting to see new cases across, new, across Long Island that suggest people have left the city. So the rich people of New York City are fanning out across the nation and taking the virus with them. The governor of New York could do something about that. The mayor of New York could do something about that. They haven't done anything. Instead, they're demanding that Washington help. And we have a federal republic. Washington can only do so much. The governor of Florida is demanding that people who fly in from New York and the surrounding states from New York quarantine themselves for 14 days. He's insisting that they do it and not with their family. they got to do it by themselves. But there's only so much the president can do. We do have a federal republic. 
And the system works by having the governors act. That's what you see in Georgia. And what do you get from the media now? The media gives you this very specific, very specific urban bias. It is the government must do something bias. Now, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it is worth noting. I, I A friend of mine who is a reporter who I, I won't give you her name, but I, I deeply respect her. She is a dear friend, uh, and she's very good at what she does. But even she admits that she and many of her colleagues have a good government bias. And a good government bias is a government that does stuff for people's well-being. And because she is a national political reporter, it is a good government bias about Washington. And she freely admits that this is a bias against conservatives because conservatives want to limit the size and scope of the federal government. And her, and this is why I have great respect for her, she recognizes she has this bias and she works very hard to cover accurately conservative ideas on why just because the federal government could do some good, the federal government could should should not necessarily do it. There are other ways to do the same good. And, and I highly respect her for recognizing her bias and seeking out contrary opinion for a different vantage point. But this is a bias. We get it with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is in Atlanta, demanding the governor, governor shut down the entire state. When's the last time? Anybody from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution went down to Appling County. When is the last time anybody in uh, the AJC went down to Douglas, Georgia? Not Douglasville, not Douglas County, but Douglas, Georgia, in South Georgia. When is the last time anybody from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution went down to Waycross? Or to Alma? Or to Baxley or Hazelhurst? Or Mount Vernon? Or Vidalia? Or Lyons? or Nunez, or Swainsboro, or Blunn, or Somerton, or Blundale, or Louisville, or Wren. When, when, when have they gone to these places? These are places that are unimpacted by the virus. They are smaller towns, some of them on federal highways, some of them not, and they want the entire state to shelter in place. There is a restaurant in Wren, Georgia, just up the street from the local IGA called Peggy's. Why does Peggy's need to shut down in or in Georgia when no one there has encountered the virus that we know of? And they can say, well, it has spread. Even the governor thinks it may have been here longer. But isn't that, a, isn't that an admission against interest then that maybe Dr. Fauci is right? It's not a 3% mortality rate. It's a 1% mortality rate. And 85 90% of the cases actually will be mild. Listen, and I'm on the side of we do need to shelter in place, but I'm also on the side of uh, regions and regionalism matters in this country, and that's part of what the president and his team are doing that I think is commendable that I want to get into here uh, in the next hour. Uh, we, We have a president and his team have modeled zip code by zip code the nation, And in modeling zip code by zip code, the nation, uh, they are able to determine the economic impact by zip code and the viral spread by zip code. And so we may come a time by Easter where the president's team looks and says, listen, there are parts of the South where it turns out uh, warmer weather actually does impact the virus and slow its progress. And there are parts of the South where the virus is winding down for the summer. It may come back. We got to keep an eye on it. But let's all 
let them go back to work and get out of their houses and go to the beach and uh, regain economic activity. Why not? Why, why, why not allow them to do that? This one-size-fits-all approach dictated by people who live in New York City is bad for the entire government. It's bad for the entire country. It is, I mean, the, the people who like, listen, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the drag queen story hour phenomenon. It's happening in a lot of urban areas. And I got friends of mine who are appalled by it. And I got friends who say, you know what, let, let local, local people do what local people want to do. Respect differences. And I've fallen the respect differences camp. I would never take my kid there. But, you know, they had a drag queen story hour in Atlanta. It's the latest phenomenon of the depraved secularists of America. But at the same time, regionalism matters. And having a, a media in New York City that has the values of New York City dictating how people in South Georgia should live and dictating how people in, in the South should live and dictating how cities, not New York City, should run uh, is not something that I think as a policy prescription we should have. And yet when it comes to this virus, that's what they want because they're in New York City. They see the problems in New York City. And they think the rest of the nation will have the same problems as New York City. But I want to play you a clip real quick. I want to play you a clip, and I'm not going to tell you who this is. I want you to listen to this audio. Uh, again, I'm not going to tell you who this person is who's speaking. You're going to have to hear the clip, and then I will tell you who this person is. Listen to this person. This is from February 6th. The important thing for New Yorkers to know is that in the city currently, their risk is low and our city preparedness is high. And so we know that this virus can be transmitted from one individual to another, but that it's typically people who live together. That there's no risk at this point in time, we're always learning more about having it be transmitted in casual contact, mm -hmm. right? So we're telling New Yorkers, go about your lives, take the subway, go out, enjoy life, but practice everyday precautions. Right. So we That's the Commissioner of Public Health for the city of New York on February 6th. By February 6th, we knew there was social spread. By February 6th, the world knew that this virus could spread socially. It wasn't just in families, that it was spreading based on surfaces. And here's the health commissioner of New York City on February 6th, where by this time we already know that there's social spread. Telling people there is no social spread. It only spreads among families in close contact that you can still ride the subway and all that stuff and you'll be fine. And New York City, what do they do? They had a big New Year's, uh, Chinese New Year festival with a bunch of people who had come over from Wuhan to celebrate the Chinese New Year festival. And look what's happened in New York City. They, those are all facts I've just stated. Why is any of that the president's fault? And why should Georgia have to upend itself economically and relationally and personally because of the screw-ups of New York City? Only because that's the worldview of the media. That's what they know. And they're convinced because it's happening in New York City, it must be happening everywhere else exactly the same way. I promise I really will get back to sending out the recipes. You can text recipe to 33777. You'll get an email back as, or you'll get a text back asking for your email address and that'll subscribe you to the list. And I'll start sending out recipes again. I, I you know, I thought I had them scheduled uh, to go out and I know I put some in, so I guess I just need to go in and click the box to get them, get them scheduled to going out. But nonetheless, you can text recipe to 33777, get on the recipe list. More importantly though, if you text data to the same number, 33777, 
yeah, I will send you back a link to uh, Substack where I'm writing a daily newsletter on the viral spread and also to the Georgia Department of Public Health and to the um, to the my bl- Johns Hopkins. Sorry, my, my brain is 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 blanking on me because I've, I've said it so much. I, I, I got to I got to I got to got to got to read you something that I wrote uh, at Substack this morning. Uh, this is what I wrote. I suspect we are about to see very loud calls for the White House press briefings to be canceled. Why? Because the president's approval rating is going up. We have witnessed the press for several years demand briefings from the White House. They are now getting them every day. The president's approval has gone up correspondingly. Therefore, I can conclude we will start to see screams about the briefings. We'll hear that it is impossible for Fauci and Burks to work if they're already on TV. We'll hear that the president is lying and harming the public. Heck, look at the reporters trying to time to idiots taking fish tank cleaner because it contains chloroquine phosphate. The press is going to now oppose what they've long demanded because these briefings are helping the president. Sure enough, I wrote that this morning. In fact, I wrote it last night and sent it out this morning. And sure enough, uh, public radio in Seattle has announced that that Seattle's national public radio station will no longer air the White House briefings on COVID-19 because of a pattern of false or misleading information. I told you, I told you, I told you. It is that predictable that the media would do this for for, uh, for, uh, Manju. What's his name? Uh, yeah, Farhad Manju, this is the writer for the New York Times, who, oh yeah, he, he's big on now suddenly embracing uh, gender pronoun and wants to use they, them as singular words because he wants his kids to be raised gender neutral. He's tweeting, uh, one thing I wonder about is how these people are doing anything to fight the virus when they're on TV three hours a day. I told you, I told you, I told you. This was so predictable that the media would react this way, that the media would say, well, we can't have these White House briefings anymore. My goodness gracious, Um, man. Uh, And so they don't want to hear Dr. Fauci on TV. By the way, Fauci himself is upset with the drama. uh, And MSNBC is comparing Iceland, which has less of a population than our least populous state, Wyoming. They're comparing Iceland's uh, COVID-19 outbreak to the United States, claiming that the U.S. should be more like Iceland. Meanwhile, Iceland per capita has more infections than the United States. They just can't help themselves. Uh, It's a shame that on the left these days, love of country involves who controls the White House. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. I want to do something that I I normally don't do, uh, but I interviewed this morning in the nine o'clock hour Admiral Brett Gerard, who who is the uh, acting or he is the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. He is in charge of testing nationwide for COVID nineteen. And we got a couple of stations that don't come on until after 10 a.m., including Athens and, and uh, the Lake Oconee area, uh, WDDK, the doc, uh, that just started joining us on Monday. And I want to make sure, and there were people who couldn't be around in the 9 o'clock hour who are. It was a highly informative interview, and so I actually want to replay 
the interview with Admiral Giroir now uh, so that people who missed the interview can hear it at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I've actually got an interview with Eric Ghost. He is the uh, CEO of Minnow, uh, which is a company that's trying to help those of you who are in churches scrambling to figure out what to do. Uh, got some ideas on that. And we're going to talk to him at, at the 1130 hour. So I want to play for you now my interview from earlier today with Admiral Giroir uh, of the Health and Human Services. Joining me by phone from Washington, D.C., the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Admiral Brett Giroir. Admiral, thanks very much for being with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show this morning. It's it, very busy all over, I'm sure. It is, and I wanted want you to know, being, being from uh, just north of Baton Rouge, I had to look to see how you pronounce your last name, because where I'm from, it's Gerard, and south of Baton Rouge, I know it's Gerard, so I wanted to make sure I had it right for you. I re, I re, you did great. I respond to anything. No no problem. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, so I, I know that... You pronounce it better than the vice president does, so that's well, that's a good mark. So I, good. I do want you to know, I, I saw a video of Kellyanne Conway last last night mentioning you and I texted her and said I pronounce I'm going to pronounce his name better than you. <laughs> okay, fantastic. All right, Admiral, uh, I know the you the White House and uh, Secretary Azar have put you in charge of testing around the country. What can you give us as far as the lay of the land goes? Well, uh testing is really uh accelerating quite quite rapidly as as we expected. Uh it started testing really started as something that only the CDC can do. And now the large reference laboratories that uh, over 90% of hospital systems use have been up and running. And as of yesterday, we had o- over 300, and I believe the number is 369,000 tests done in the U.S., so ramping up very, very rapidly. It's still very important to know, though, that not everybody who wants a test should get a test because we really uh, need to preserve our capacity for those who are hospitalized or sick or healthcare workers, first responders, or those who are elderly and symptomatic. Um, eventually, uh, testing will be broad, broad spectrum and potentially something you could even do at home and send in. It's not there now, but it's very important uh, for the people who need to get tested to get tested. And again, we have large and expanding capacity every day. One of the things that I hear from some people out there is that at this point, what's the point? Because the virus has probably spread so much. Um, What's your take on that line of reasoning? Well, um, for individuals, it it depends. Number one, it depends where you are, right? There are certain communities in certain states that they still don't have a case. So if you have a suspected case, uh, you want to diagnose that and be able to contain them, quarantine them. In places where it's all over, you know, the place and spreading quite rapidly, um, like the New York cities of the world, um, it's much more important to focus testing on those for whom it will make a difference either to their care or how the care system cares for them. For example, if there's a patient in a hospital, uh, if they're positive, they may qualify for experimental drug therapy or, or other things that you would do. If they're negative, you might do other things to them, like accelerate antibiotics, give them steroids, all those sorts of things, so very important. And also, if you know a patient is positive, it really uh, helps the healthcare workers to protect themselves, to use the appropriate personal protective equipment, et cetera. If you're negative, um, you can go in a clean part of the hospital and all that doesn't matter, right? So, so mm-hmm. testing is important, but it really depends on the community you're in, on how it's employed. And that's why public health is sort of a local and state thing, because it is different where you are in the stage of the outbreak. 
Now, one of the people I know who is a dear friend who sings your praises is the former Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who is huh. governor of Texas, um, uh, created their task force on infectious disease preparedness and, and put you in charge of it. And he's mentioned your name more than once. And uh, as someone who knows how to anticipate uh, pandemic disease, and I guess in particular the situation there was when Ebola was uh, Ebola right. patients were coming in. Exactly. Um, how do you develop plans to do this sort of thing? What do you look at? So um, the the plans for you know since uh, the mid two thousands, um, the nation and and really every state has developed what we call pandemic influenza plans. And although this is an influenza, it's very similar um, in many ways because it's a droplet respiratory spread. Um, it's a respiratory lung disease. It has many characteristics of a pandemic flu, meaning that no one's immune to it because it'd be, it's a brand new strain. So um, th this is really what we've been doing for 15 years. Now, as you remember, uh, uh, people say, you know, your plans change when the first shot is fired, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's good to have that plan and to understand and rehearse. And every year, there's national rehearsals about how to run through the pandemic scenarios. So um, it's very important that we've done this because not that we know all the answers, but at least people are thinking about it and have symptoms and approaches, systems and approaches to, to how to attack the problem. So many things we know. We have a stockpile of personal protective equipment. We have a stockpile of ventilators. You know, we have things, distribution systems. All those things are in place. But again, this is of unprecedented scale um, that we're facing now, certainly in certain areas like New York City and growing areas like uh, in Louisiana, Washington, uh, Michigan, New Jersey. Uh, but we have planned. We have a playbook the playbook serves as a guide. You can't follow it perfectly because you can't anticipate what's happening. But, you know, th there are groups of people, supplies, processes in place that we, we rehearse and we generally follow. Now, the media, I, I think, has taken the president's remarks yesterday about opening the country back up around Easter, somewhat out of context, where he said he was going to listen to the experts, that that's what he would like to do. He's not sure that's the date. Uh, what goes into looking at, at when it's safe for people essentially to come back out of their houses? So, um, so I wasn't with the president yesterday, uh, so I, I was not at that news conference, but I, I, I'll, I'll just interpret what I heard, is that um, th there, are, there are a lot of factors that need to be taken into account. Um, we are, you know, uh, one of them is where you are in the infectivity curve, right? So that is very important. But, you know, if we wanted to say that there's zero chance of any coronavirus happening in the country, you know, you could be, you can close the country down for an extended period of time. There has to be a balance between what is the risk, and that's the scientific and epidemiology, um, versus what we need to do as a country. So I think all factors need to be weighed. Remember, the best thing that you could do for health overall is to have the economy going, get people jobs, have them, have them, you know, doing things. So there, there's a lot of factors to weigh in. That clearly is a task force recommendation and a presidential decision. But I have never, uh, I've worked with the president a lot. He is always uh, keenly listening to scientists and medical advisors. He doesn't shut anyone out. He asked everyone's opinion. He listens to it critically. And I, I have very, uh, I'm very confident that, that this will be a, a good decision made on the basis of science and all factors. 
Admiral, and for those just tuning in, I'm talking to Admiral Brett Gerard. He's the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services right now. And it's I, I've somewhat remarked to, for example, Senator Leffler, who was appointed by Governor Kemp here in Georgia to be in the Senate, that none of us saw this this situation coming. Uh, even in December, uh, there were starting to be warning signs in, in China. And what information goes into the processes, uh, much like you talked about earlier in, in planning for pandemics, you start seeing the situation situation happening in China. We we suspect they weren't quite as candid as they, well, we know they weren't quite as candid as they should have been, but what goes into it, given your position, uh, the level of feedback and information that starts coming in to start realizing something's going on? Well, it's, it's like any uh, operation. You try to get as much information as possible, and clearly um, uh, much of the eyes and ears were, were the CDC um, who have direct contacts and people, you know, uh, on the ground in, in China, but very good contacts with Chinese CDC. Um, you piece together information that you can get in the open press uh, on the uh, social media sites. But I think this is the question you're, you're answering. Until China really opened up and became transparent, um, you try to put together the best information you could um, and, and start, planning, start planning in that way. The things you didn't know very early was the infectivity. You know, how many people do normal people infect, how quickly it's spreading, what are kind of the symptom patterns, et cetera. Um, and again, uh, we would, of course, like to know that very, very early. Uh, but, you know, we did have some, you know, some view in from the sources that I said, and we began to, to plan accordingly. You know, Secretary Azar, uh, our secretary, took this uh, very seriously, as, as we all did. Um, and we really engaged in planning from the moment we heard something. But, of course, when the information got out much more readily about what it was, and certainly when the genes for the uh, virus became available, then everything went into full swing. Once you had the gene sequence, we can start on a vaccine, and that was done immediately. Now, a lot of people, we're entering this contrarian mode where we've been a week of people having to sit on their couch and they're already ready uh-huh. to get get back out. And I'm, I'm hearing people out there now say, in fact, the Wall Street Journal has a has an op-ed out today that, well, maybe it's really not as, as bad as we think and more people probably have it than we know and testing hasn't been good. Uh, what's your take on, on that line of thinking? Um, my take is uh, don't be foolish. Um, this is absolutely serious. Uh, the rate of increase, for example, in New York City, is uh, is is uh, is is doubling about every day uh, the number of deaths or, or more that we're seeing. Um, uh, we're still seeing people getting you know infected, and for most people, uh, this is not going to be a serious disease. But for the elderly uh, or those with chronic conditions and some who are young, you know this is definitely a life-threatening disease. We do not have clear medications against it, although there are some that are hopeful. We do not have a vaccine. What we do know that works is the kind of social distancing, um, stopping travel, staying in your home as much as possible, not gathering in groups. That will work. If we are foolish enough to disregard that because we don't think it's a real problem, then this could be catastrophic for the country. So I think people really need to heed the president's advice, the advice coming from the task force. 15 days, right? And we'll evaluate it. But that 15 days is critically important, and it's our major weapon to stop this outbreak. Last question for you. I know supplies around the country in hospitals are tight. My wife is someone who has been upstairs sewing cloth masks um, 
for her doctor and friend nurses to put over their uh, disposable ones just to preserve them longer. And I know there are a lot of people around the country. In fact, uh, elastic is running slow as or running short as a, as a result. And there are some people online I'm seeing saying, oh, you should take out the, the antiviral filters from air conditioner filters and sew those into masks and things like that. Are, are, are people doing more harm than good with some of these things or should they yeah. keep that up? Yeah, I, they, they, there are there are ways to protect yourself, and there are ways not to. And and there are some clear guidelines on on CDC. Um, it's very important to preserve what masks we have for the people at risk. So, um, if you're a layperson not interacting, stay at home. You don't need to buy masks, right? We need to have masks for the people who are in the healthcare system, those who are sick and need to have a mask to protect them from spewing uh, the virus all, all over. There are many alternatives popping up. I think the, the president announced a few days ago the Haynes Company has a cotton mask that they're going to make in millions of quantities coming out um, that, have, that are impregnated with copper and, I think, zinc ions that, that are very highly antimicrobial. These will be coming out in the millions and millions and millions. I, I know here at FEMA we've been scouring the globe and have uh, uh, obtained really massive supplies from around around the world, uh, getting supply chains back together, as well as accelerating industry. And the process that goes by, it's very orderly at FEMA. That's why we're here. Is that the states the states understand what they need to make a request through FEMA, and we distribute it. So we have been able to keep up with requests, and it's very important to follow the process because this is a huge, you know, this is this is the invasion of Normandy. But uh, on a healthcare kind of scenario, it, it's that complex. Uh, it requires that much logistics. We have the logistics lead, Admiral Polacek, from uh, from the Joint Staff, who's running our logistics. So this is no kidding, all hands on deck. So I think we're going to be keep. We certainly are increasing our supplies. Um, we're finding supplies around the globe, and right now we're keeping up with demand as we see it as requests come in. Well, Admiral, listen, thank you for taking some time out with us today. I really appreciate it. I know your schedule is tight and busy, but this has been quite informative. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, look forward to it. Okay, and thanks for the name pronunciation. You Absolutely. did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> Take All right. care. Well, talk about challenge accepted. Uh, you know this is going to happen. The governor of Virginia, Governor Blackface himself, Ralph Northam, has decided to issue an executive order banning church services of 10 or more people. You know, most churches actually have closed uh, because they don't want to spread the virus. I mentioned in the first hour the story of the church in Arkansas where this was before the CDC was recommending closures, but 35 people attended a, a kid's church service and have now gotten uh, COVID-19. That's how contagious it is. Or in Albany, Georgia, you've now got a, a viral spread in Albany, Georgia, because of two funerals with one preacher who pr was infected and preached. And you've had uh, not quite half of the deaths in the state, but close to half the deaths in the state of Georgia uh, from connected to that. Uh, so people are avoiding church. My own church is closed down and trying to come up with ways to, to do church together communally. Piedmont Church here in Macon, where I am, uh, did what I, I think my church is trying to, to get technically to be able to do it is to um, to do a radio transmitter service uh, so that people can park in their cars, tune into a station, and um, can can hear the church service. The preacher stands at the door. I think this is what Piedmont did. The preacher stood up front at the door of the church. People parked in the parking lot and, and tuned into an FM station were able to hear the sermon. Uh, Ralph Northam, however, uh, is banning uh, the church services. Uh, it's a crime for more than 10 people to gather in a church. Now, 
I don't think people should be doing that, but there may very well be parts of the state where people are comfortable doing that. And if they are, do it. Um, banning people from worshiping together uh, is is just, it's, it's a challenge accepted moment, frankly. And I don't think that is a wise thing for the governor of Virginia to do because you know in, in parts of Virginia, there are people who are going to be willing to do that. And we'll see. Now, I want to play uh, this little bit of audio because there is a guy out there that a lot of people are wondering where is he. And I wonder what he thinks about uh, Ralph Northam. We should find out. But <laughs> our friends at Grabian put together this montage of poor old Joe Biden having a hard time of it. Have you been uh, tested for the coronavirus? No, I, I have not been tested for the coronavirus. Uh, I've had, thank God, no symptoms that I'm aware of. Doesn't mean that that can't happen. Up for the next round of primaries, <coughs> including. <coughs> I've not talked to any individual. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, you're supposed to cough into your elbow. I don't know, sir. That's, I learned that actually covering your White House. That's, that you no, actually, actually, that's true. But fortunately, I'm alone in my home. But that's okay. Vice President Biden, thank you so much for your time. Please stay healthy. For keeping businesses shut. We have to take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse no matter what. And no. what is it like to be a candidate in the time of social distancing? <clears throat> well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine, thank you. <clears throat> and I think we've been... Public, but first of all, in this crisis, <clears throat> I'd like to... earlier, he's talking... <clears throat> and I tell you what, I'm so darn proud. And those poor people who have lost, you know, anyway, it's just... Mm -hmm. My heart goes out to No, me. no, no. Listen, we're, we're have to make a choice about who leads this country. I just I just can't figure the guy. It's like, it's, I don't know, it's like watching a yo-yo. I shouldn't have said it that way. It's like watching. It feels that way. I want to ask. I want to. Okay, I, I got to stop there because that's just too painful to listen to. It's, it's, it, I realize the, the montage is clipped a little bit, but even watching it, that MSNBC interview with Nicole Wallace was just painful. It was painful, and I kid you not. Um, where where is the? Um, let me go over to the Atlantic uh, because they actually have a story, uh, and the headline is basically Joe Biden, please don't die, or stay alive, or some such. This is this is how they're viewing the situation. Joe Biden is their hope and savior against the president, and I just don't know that. He's getting traction. And, you know, at the same time, I mentioned earlier that they are seriously, the, the political right now has a story out that they are encouraging people to shut down the White House press briefing, that the president lies too much. Y'all, they've been running the White House press briefing for two weeks. Nothing has changed except for one thing, the polling. For two weeks, the press has used the White House press briefing as ways to beat up the president. And while they've been doing it, the president's job approval numbers continue to go up, continue to go up. And so now suddenly there's, oh, well, the president lies too much in these briefings. We need to we need to shut down the briefing. So the situation hasn't changed. Uh, the president today is the president from yesterday is the president from two weeks ago. Uh, the, the, what they call lies, what the president was saying two weeks ago when they were blasting for the misstatements. He was doing it two weeks ago in their minds. Uh, the only thing that has changed, the only thing 
is that the president's job approval numbers are going up. CBS now has a poll out that 56% of Americans approve of the president's job approval. Uh, Gallup has it at, at, at 60%. ABC News has it at 56%. Suddenly, suddenly, it's a bad thing. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me here shortly, uh, Eric Goss uh, from Minnow is going to join me. A lot of groups, a lot of people out there wondering uh, how can they worship together. Uh, Minnow is actually a website. Uh, that is working to help people who are stuck at home uh, roll out a, a church at home feature, uh, and uh, they're they're Nashville based, uh, the Franklin area. I'm intrigued also because Eric Goss spells his name like me, so that's a good thing. Uh, meanwhile, you should know the governor of Virginia has signed an executive order banning churches from meeting. Uh, and so this is a relevant time to explore something like this. Uh, but joining me is the CEO and co-founder of Minnow, uh, Eric Goss. And Eric, I got to tell you, you're you're one of the rare people I've encountered who spells your first name the right way. <laughs> Thank you. I know that, Eric. I appreciate that. Great minds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Our, our, our parents can all be proud. Now, l- let me ask you about Minnow, and, and particularly in light of this, the governor of Virginia, you might not have heard, has just signed an executive order banning churches uh, with 10 or more people from meeting. Uh, I, I'm sure some will want to challenge that, but uh, Minnow, uh, and the website is, is gominnow.com, uh, helps families, in particular right now, you guys, it, it looks like are trying to help families who are stuck at home and, and still want to get church. Yeah, so so Min, Minnow is actually a streaming platform for Christian families, so we have a subscription uh, platform that's similar to Disney Plus or Netflix, but specifically for Christian families to, to help them find programming um, for their kids, and we... You know, I've, I've been involved with the church um, in, in planning churches, and what I recognize, as soon as churches stop meeting, while there's some large churches that will actually be able to live stream their services, um, th- that most churches really, you know, even those churches that can live stream aren't going to have resources in place to be able to serve kids at home. And a lot of parents are struggling with, what does it mean to actually have a faith experience for my children at home when they can't go to church every week? And so we set up Minnow Church at Home. Um, and, and you can actually go to that URL, minnowchurchathome.com, and what you can find is a video that we've put together um, of that's curated, that's got um, Bible stories, worship music, um, Bible verses, prayers, so parents can um, either watch that with their children or give their children the opportunity to watch it by themselves. Then we've also included a downloadable Bible story that's got questions um, for the family to go through together. And then there are a whole bunch of download packs where people can um, download activity sheets or coloring sheets um, for their kids. Um, that way they can have a you know children's ministry or a Sunday school-like experience while they're at home. Wow. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm glad to find out that you guys exist because I've been struggling uh, with our family at home. Uh, our family, we're, we're now under a shelter in place order for my family in Georgia. My, my, my wife's got lung cancer, so we're not allowed out of the house in our family. Uh, so church is, is not possible and trying to figure out ways to get my kids involved and stuff. I've been struggling for stuff. 
Yeah, well, and, and you're not alone, Eric. I think most parents, that, that's, that's where most parents are. So when we started Minnow, we just launched it in November of last year. We did extensive research and discussions with parents. And so many parents, like the, the, the key issues for them are, I really want to help my children understand their faith and help them grow up with a Judeo-Christian background. Um, but then the second is, I want to protect my kids from culture because, man, culture is encroaching on my household, and there are messages and themes that people think are appropriate for my children that, you know, I don't think they are appropriate. And so I need help. I need to create sort of a, a what I'd call kind of a cul-de-sac that I know I can relax in. And so that's really why we launched Menno was basically to be that protected cul-de-sac that, you know, you know that your kids can go out and play, and you can feel very comfortable with them watching what we put on, knowing that we've watched every minute of it. We're parents ourselves, and we care deeply about helping kids understand their faith and helping them to grow up to be the type of human beings that we think really benefit society at large. Now, I, I, I know my listeners well enough to know that I, I feel obligated to ask you, I, I'm assuming, particularly for the kids' activities, uh, Christian non-denominational as, as opposed to a particular denomination. Yes, yeah. So we, I, I would say Christian non-denominational. We we like to think big tent. I always talk about big tent Christianity or Apostles Creed Christianity. And so um, we are we we don't necess- we don't fall under a denomination at all. And that we've got um, we have Protestants, Evangelicals, mainline church, um, you know, very conservative churches, Catholic churches, even Greek uh, Greek Orthodox churches, um, families from those type of faith streams that are subscribed to Minnow today. So so my, my my Baptist friends who are listening and know I'm Presbyterian know they're they're not gonna get instructions on sprinkling their kids. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The one thing I love about children's content is it tends to focus on first things uh, and it can't get too dogmatic. And so um, so what we like to say is is his minnow travels well throughout the church. Um, just because, you know, the need for kids having great programming is so significant. And then, you know, we get to focus on first things, which most people, most of the church agrees on. Now, I, I want to just let listeners know, I'm, I'm, so I'm talking to Eric Goss with Minnow. It's M-I-N-N-O. And if you want to get an easy link to the, the church at home, uh, if you text the word data to 33777, I'll spit you back a link, uh, text you back a link. I won't say spit, uh, text you back a link right now to their website so you can click through and, and see what we're talking about here uh, for that at home. Now, let me step back a, a little bit. As you mentioned, wanting to save space. And, and I've I've been craving this sort of content, uh, and there are groups out there who try to provide content. Now, this this does seem to be growing among the Christian community as as people more and more recognize there's got to be a level of Christian culture that we can engage with that isn't really present uh, in your typical online venues. Yeah, and. and it- <laughs> In many ways, I say Minnows is a God-friendly place because God, you know most most of the places, most of the platforms um, that are available today, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Hulu, even Disney Plus, at times are what I consider not God-friendly. And 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 part of the challenge, I used to work at Amazon. I was a I was a, a a manager there, senior manager at Amazon. And and the one thing I recognized is most of the executives that I worked with don't have any faith tradition whatsoever to call upon. And so these are the folks who are making all the content decisions for the major technology platforms. And so, um, you know, in, and in some instances, not only do they not know anyone who cares about um, Christianity or cares 
about faith, but they may not even know someone who's conservative in politics. Like they may be surrounded with folks who are are liberal and then also may not even have a faith tradition that they adhere to or care about. And so when they start thinking about um, when they start thinking about content and it's got any kind of faith reference to it, their first first reaction is not, oh, that's interesting. It's, ooh, we better keep that away. And so <clears throat> what we recognized is it's really hard. And, and what a lot of people don't understand is from a structural standpoint, you know, in an industry standpoint, we could have someone, we could have a, a, a creator, someone who's written a new show that may be better than VeggieTales, because VeggieTales is probably the show that most folks are familiar with. But that show could not get made today. Like there's not a platform where that creator could actually go and get that show funded and green-lighted because none of the major platforms actually care about the church-going audience. Um, and it's not an audience that they have prioritized. And if they think about it, they think about it more from an exploitation standpoint of, hey, let's license that movie because it was really successful at the box office. They don't really have a mindset of what can we do to serve families who care about their faith and want to instill faith and character in their kids. And so that's really what we, what, why we launched Menno was to basically to serve those families. And then, you know, with the expectation of growing it to where we could make investments in content and to be able to tell those stories that so many parents are looking for their kids to be able to experience. Um, because, you know, today it's so rare that you see any sort of Judeo-Christian faith tradition represented on the major platforms in a favorable way. Well, yeah, I completely agree with that, and it's it's as a parent of an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old, finding that good content is is something, so I appreciate you guys doing that, and and thank you for thinking about all the people who are stuck at home now and need to have church at home, uh, struggling to find resources, and, and again, it, so it's it's uh, gominno.com, and you guys are based up in the Nashville area, aren't you? We are, we are. So we're uh, we're sheltered in place here, and uh, and I am very familiar with your Baptist listeners <laughs> being in Nashville. <laughs> so, so, so those are our people. Well, so, one day uh, I'm going to have the, the the PCA Baptist Battle of the Sprinklin and Duncan. <laughs> yeah, I very appreciate that. Yep. I, uh, I I've been an elder in PCA churches myself. Well, so, it, um, you know, my my wife and I are in a PCA church now, and and we both grew up Southern Baptist, and she swears we got to build a pool in the backyard so our kids can actually be baptized <laughs> yeah that's hilarious that's awesome well yeah and and, and just to cheer your listeners so it's easy we we have you uh, we have a website menno church at home where they can find a church at home experience and if they want to see the menno platform they can either go to gominno.com that's g-o-m-n-m-i-n-n-o.com or they can go into the app store at apple google amazon or roku and just search for menno and they'll find our app there fantastic and again to, to make it easy for everybody listening i've set it up if you text data to 33777 i'll send you back that link as well so you can check it out eric thank you so much for stopping by and talking about this hey thanks so much eric it's great to be on and uh we'll just uh, we'll be praying for your listeners it's a tough time so but we know the lord will see us through absolutely thank you very much that's eric goss of, of minnow again if you if you're interested in doing this if you need a setup for uh, church at home with your family right now, go to, just text the word data to 33777. I'll send you back the the audit link for Georgia Public Health and for Johns Hopkins, but I'll also, I took out my stuff uh, and put in this stuff if you're interested in the church at home setup with Minnow um, so that you have some resources 
uh, for you at home stuck not going to church. Now, I suspect, if you're just tuning in here, the governor of Virginia has now imposed an order banning churches of 10 or more people from getting together. And listen, I think it's advisable for you not to go to church right now. I really do. And I, I hate to say that. In fact, I'm trying to figure out what can I do uh, with my listeners in that regard, and and I'm 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 in seminary. Well, I'm I'm on sabbatical from seminary right now because I'm doing five hours of radio a day. Uh, but I'm trying to figure out ways to do it, and, and I always do a Good Friday service, and it's a different radio experience. Uh, I, and I'll get into it on Good Friday as to why I do what I do on Good Friday. But let me also put out the all call again that if you are with a church or group that has music uh, that you think I should consider, and, and I can't do it for everybody, but I do like to listen and find uh, good music, and I try to prioritize groups out of Georgia. So there will be lots of third day in there for sure, among others. Um, Andrew Peterson will be in there and stuff. But if you have music you think I should consider, uh, drop me a line, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at theresurgent.com, or there's a contact form on theresurgent.com. You can use the contact form, reach out, and send me a link so I can listen listen to it. I do try to find relevant music from Georgia for the Good Friday show to put in there. I realize if you haven't listened to me uh, in Atlanta, uh, this we haven't done it on this show because we only launched in August. We did something kind of appropriate at Christmas, something similar. But on Good Friday, uh, we abandoned the day-to-day political topics, and we actually do a, an actual uh, talk about the history and philosophy and everything else, because it is considered even by a bunch of atheist historians, perhaps the most important day in human history. Uh, and the Christians would say it is. Well, there was actually that, that Easter Sunday is the most important day in human history. But for even a, a lot of secular scholars, the, the killing of a guy named Jesus from Nazareth in Jerusalem in sometime around AD 33 is considered a turning point in human history. And it, because it's so significant, I like to pause on Good Friday and actually do a show about it. And I play, don't play standard music that we play on the show. We actually play music from churches and, and Christian groups that day. So uh, drop me a line if you want me to consider it. And I want to go on and take a time out here, reset. When we come back, we got a little more we need to talk about. There is some development news out there with the stimulus deal we need to talk about well the the house of representatives is is having a little bit of trouble uh getting in order to pass the stimulus plan they gaveled into session and then went straight out of session and they're having trouble figuring out how to get a vote part of the problem here is that they are worried one of the the super fiscally conservative members of the House Republicans will object. And if they object, then they have to do a voice vote and any member can move to do a roll call vote. And they're just not sure. They can't get people back. I am hearing that a number of people are out there trying to get back to Congress. A number of members of Congress have sent me emails saying that they're headed back in large part because um, they, they're afraid that someone's going to object and, and they're really starting to get aggravated uh, about the possibility of it. So things are still in flux up there. The president has uh, said he is willing to sign it. Uh, and the president, of course, wants to get this going as quickly as he can because he really would like to get the country back open. And here's part of his concern, which there is a it is valid. You're going to lose 
a number of people to the flu. But you're going to lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession or depression. You're going to lose people. You're going to have suicides by the thousands. You're going to have all sorts of things happen. You're going to have instability. You can't just come in and say, let's close up the United States of America, the biggest, the most successful country in the world by far. You know, when I came in, when I was elected, and you knew this number, China was going to overtake us in the year 2019. It wasn't even close. We went way up, and they didn't. We've done great. They pay us a fortune in tariffs and everything else, and yet we have a good relationship with them. We just signed a trade deal. But we're the number one in the world by far. And now a few people walk into the Oval Office and say, sir, we have to close up the country. And I, that said, what you, I said, what are you talking about? And that, about? Mr. President, must have been a very difficult thing to accept. One of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. One of the most difficult decisions he's ever made, close up the country. Here's the thing. Um, if we can get everyone to stay home and cur and curve away from the virus increasing, Italy has actually managed now, it looks like, to get on the other side of the curve where the rates decline. Although I do have to tell you, in Hong Kong, Singapore, and even parts of China, uh, they're worried the virus is trying to come back. Uh, but Italy looks like it's gotten over the curve now, and we need to do that. And if we can do that in the next couple of weeks, then maybe we very well be able to open parts of the country. Not all of it. New York is probably going to be closed off for a while, but but parts of it we should be able to do. And that's not a bad thing. And if the president does have concern, uh, the economic burden on people, the, the stress, all of that uh, has an impact on people. You don't want to start seeing the suicide rate go up. Look, look what happened, just very legitimately, look, look at what happened down in South Georgia. After Hurricane Michael came through, and when the federal government delayed sending checks and relief that they promised, the rates of suicide began to go up down there among farmers and others who were on hard times, didn't see a path forward, and lost hope. And you don't want to do that here. You don't want people to lose hope. And it's interesting to me the media is accusing the president of, of seeding false hope. He's not really. He's trying to be an optimist, and the media is demanding he be a pessimist, which is unfortunate. They're also trying to divide him with Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, by the way, has had enough. Uh, I've saved the best for last. Listen to this uh, from Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, I want to ask you about something that I've seen transpiring over the past couple of days, especially as it relates to you. It seems like increasingly a bunch of the questions from the media are designed to create a rift between you and the president of the United States, or at least to sort of emphasize differences of opinion in a way uh, that, you know, creates distance between you and the president. Are you sensing that as the media continually asks you questions about the differences you have with him? That, that is really unfortunate. I, I would wish that that would stop because we have a much bigger problem here uh, than trying to point out differences. They're really fundamentally at the core. When you look at things, there are not differences. The president has listened to what I have said and what the other people on the task force have said. When I've made recommendations, he's taken them. He's never countered or overridden me. The idea of just pitting one against the other is just not helpful. I wish that would stop and we'd look ahead at the challenge we have to pull together to get over this thing. He's right. The division in the media is crazy. And they are seeding stories. They have seeded stories. They have pushed stories that try to suggest that the president and Dr. Fauci are at are at odds. Listen, there is a media presupposition. If you got my if you get my daily email, 
I wrote about this this morning. Let, let me actually, not to be repetitive here, but let me just read you the opening here. You can text DATA to 33777. You'll get back the link. If there's one thing we know for certain about the American press corps' interaction with President Trump, it's that they presuppose him an unserious and very vain dolt. If anyone grabs too much of the spotlight or utters anything disloyal, the president throws them out the door. That's why so much of the press, that's what so much of the press believes. In fact, I suspect some of you reading believe it too. Certainly some of the White House believe it. They've tried to exploit it by circulating rumors about various people riding too high in the saddle. The press has tried to drum up divisions between the president and vice president in this way. How many stories have we read about the vice president overshadowing the president or over operating as a shadow president? These weren't true, but they were circulated to try to spark division. The press fundamentally believes the president will fire people who are more likable than him, overshadow him, or make him look bad by outperforming him. So I have to wonder if a portion of the press corps is trying to get a lot of Americans killed right now. Now, I got reporters who are very upset with me for writing that this morning. But I think you got to ask that. They're trying to get Dr. Fauci killed, the, the guy who's advising the president. They're, they're not get killed. They're trying to get him fired. They're trying to get him fired. Why? Because they want the division. They want the soap opera. They don't like that the president's approval rating is going up, and they blame Fauci for helping him.